Well, again, I want to welcome you to Freedom Church. It's a joy to see a number of uh, new faces around the room. Some of you maybe got uh, cards uh, inviting you uh, to worship with us today, or maybe uh, somebody invited you, but uh, however you got here, I'm just glad that you're here and want you to know that you are in a safe place with people who love Jesus and who are hungry to know God and to live a life that would honor and please Him. And so uh, we're really glad that you would come and be a part of things today. We're in a series that we just started last week that's entitled, Be All That You Can Be. Uh, we're not trying to, to uh, restart the Army's slogan there, but it, it really is a, a little line that sums up what we want. All of us want to be everything that we can be in life, true? I mean, who wants to get to the end and look back and go, man, I sure wasted a lot. <laughs> wasted a lot of opportunities, just, just really wasted a lot of my life. Nobody wants that to be the story and the way that we feel at the end of it all. So how do you make decisions and how do you position yourself so that you really do accomplish the most, make the most out of the opportunities that you've been given. And so this whole series is going to take us through the months of at least August and September. It's about looking to the scriptures to try and answer that question. How, how do you live in such a way that, that you become all that you were designed to be? And we believe that in order for us to do that, that we've got to be connected to the one who made us. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to be all that you can be, you better be connected to the one who made you to be something. The one who has a plan for your life, who designed you in a particular way. And so the beginning point last week in, in this was about believing. That you really can't get your life straight until you get your thinking straight. And we said, you know, it really is significant to realize that in an, in an age when particularly in Western culture and, and especially in the U.S., it's become popular to, to essentially say and think, that as long as you have a belief system that works for you, that's enough. So you believe what you want to about God and you believe what you want to about truth and about right and wrong. And as long as that system works for you, that's good. And I'll have my own system and we can just coexist. Do you see how common this has become in the culture around us? It's just like, you know, I won't mess with you and you don't mess with me. And we'll just all have our belief systems and your truth is your truth and mine is my own. The problem is... That's not truth. And that's not the way it really works. There is right and there is wrong and there is a God and He's not the God of our choosing. He is God. He is the Creator. He is the ruler of the universe. He made us. He made a moral universe in, in which things are supposed to work in a particular way. And when we get out of step with that, we become like a gear running in the wrong direction in a great big machine. It begins to crush us. It causes us pain. It causes others pain around us. And when we just make up a God of our own choosing, we miss out on the opportunity to live life connected with the God who made us and who wants to really do something significant through us. And so we said as a beginning point, it's important to believe the truth. And we, we looked at how we really have a good reason to believe the Bible as a revelation of truth. And the Bible reveals that there is one God who always exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that this God is knowable and personal, and He is a loving God who chooses to enter into a relationship with us. And so that's the point at which we pick things up today. Asking the fundamental question, if I accept that there is a loving, personal God who wants me to know Him, how do I begin a relationship with Him? How do I actually get into that? Because I promise you, you weren't just born with that. You may have been born in the most wonderful, loving Christian family imaginable, but you weren't born in a relationship with God. 
as sweet and wonderful as tiny little babies seem when they're born, they're not born a part of the family of God. You just wait till they're about two years old and you realize really quickly that they are not born into the family of God. You feel like when they're about two years old that evil somehow has come into the picture. Nobody had to teach them how to say mine and how to throw a fit. It's already wired into us. So how do we get into the family of God? How do we begin a relationship with God? I want to share with you three stories today. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and be turning with me to the first of those three uh, stories in the Scriptures. It's in John chapter 3. They're all three short stories. And essentially, the three stories that I'm going to tell you are about three different men who wanted a relationship with God who wanted to go to heaven, who wanted to be a part of the kingdom of God, the family of God. And the first two stories, if we could use the analogy of baseball, they are guys who stepped up ready to go and they swung and missed. And the third one stepped up and hit a home run. The first story is the story of a man named Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, the very beginning of that chapter, we don't know exactly how far into his public ministry Jesus is at this point. But he's been around for a while, long enough that the religious leadership has taken notice of him. They've taken notice of his teaching and of his miracles. And one of the most senior members of the Jewish leadership, a member of the high council, is named Nicodemus. And he comes to talk to Jesus. And in verse 1 it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish Ruling council. Now realize, to just say that he's a Pharisee says a lot. These are the guys who make the rules. They are professional religious people. But to be a member of the ruling council is like the Jewish Supreme Court. These are the guys who ultimately are going to have Jesus murdered. So, I mean, he is at the highest level. He came to Jesus at night. That's significant. He's curious, but he doesn't want to be public in in pursuing Jesus. So he comes at night and he says, Rabbi, which just means teacher. We know you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. He's beginning to connect the dots. While the, the other members of the ruling council hate Jesus, and Jesus is always at odds with them, at least one member of the ruling council is scratching his head and saying, something doesn't add up. I know all of my peers are saying, you know, this man is evil and, and we've, got to, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to end this movement. And he's like, there's something about him, though, that, that really makes me want to press in and find out more. Because how could he do the things that he's doing if God was not with him? And that's what he's verbalized to Jesus. And in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, we've heard that phrase thrown around a lot in our time, especially since the days when Jimmy Carter was president. You remember, those of you who are old enough, how suddenly everybody began to use that phrase again because Jimmy Carter said he was a born-again Christian. And the the media kind of went crazy with that. They're like, he's not just a Christian. He is a born-again Christian. And I remember thinking, is there any other kind? And then I grew up a little more and I realized, yes, there is. There are tons of cultural Christians. People who don't have a relationship with God... But their religious affiliation would be with Christianity, not with Islam or Buddhism or anything else. So they would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they've never been born again. And Jimmy Carter was a real public figure who said, I have been a born again Christian. And Jesus said, you can't be a part of the kingdom of God if you're not born again. And Nicodemus asked in response in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. I mean, bear in mind, if you had not heard this phrase thrown around for your entire life... And you go to someone and you say, 
I know you must be from God. I know you must have a message for us. So what is the message? What's the truth that I need to know? If that person said to you and you've never heard the phrase before, you can't get into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Wouldn't you be a little perplexed like Nicodemus? Who's going, I got to do what? I've got to be born again. I'm a pretty big boy to get back in my mother's womb here. How am I going to be born again? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. When he says water, he's not talking about baptism. He's simply talking about you've got to be born in the flesh and you've got to be born again spiritually. He drives home that idea when he says flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying that you must be born again. Now, he's going to give him an illustration because he's talking about a spiritual reality that you can't see with your eyes and you can't measure scientifically. He says, but the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's something beyond what you can just see and measure. And Nicodemus asked in response, how can this be? Nicodemus is a concrete thinker. He's a, a bright person. And Jesus is talking about a spiritual reality that Nicodemus has never been exposed to before. And he's come to Jesus because he believes that that Jesus has something for him. And he's hungry for more. And he's asking for more. And Jesus is speaking in what seems to be riddles for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you, you can't get into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. I don't understand. How can I be born again? Well, it's a spirit thing. Just like you were born in the flesh, you've got to be born again by the Spirit. And and even though you can't see what the Spirit's doing, you can still believe in what you don't see. Because, see, Jesus, even though Nicodemus hasn't brought this up, Jesus is addressing what he knows is an issue for him. That Nicodemus is, is accustomed to, I like rules, that's why I'm a Pharisee. We've got over 600 of them. We write them down. They're black and white. They're clear. You obey it or you break it. I understand that. It's concrete. And now you're talking to me about something that's so touchy feely, this invisible work of the spirit i don't believe in things invisible and jesus essentially goes ahead and addresses that and says do you believe in the wind you don't see it but you feel it you don't know where it comes from you don't know where it's going but you believe in it and he's using a great analogy because the term for spirit means wind or breath the spirit of god is the very breath of god he says you believe in things that you can't see you've just got to make the connection and realize there are a lot of things in life that you believe in that you can't see There are some of us who who struggle with those kinds of things. We're intellectual people and we want to be able to prove everything that we believe in. And the truth of the matter is you believe in a lot of things that you can't prove and measure. Do you believe your mom and daddy love you? Do you believe your kids love you? Prove it. Measure it. You can't, can you? And yet you believe in it. You know it's real because you've experienced it. And Jesus said a lot of things in life are this way. The work of the Spirit is this way. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And apparently, Nicodemus walks away having totally missed it at that point. Because the next time we see Nicodemus in John chapter 7, he's right back with the Jewish ruling high council. He's back with the the crowd that's going to wind up having Jesus murdered. Now we jump to the next story. It's a very... Well-known story. You'll recognize this one. It's, uh, it's listed in multiple places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll go to Matthew chapter 19. We'll use his account 
in looking at the story that's commonly referred to as the story of the rich young man, the rich young ruler. And uh, some of the details you'll hear me share won't be in Matthew's account, but if you read all three accounts together, you'll see some of the details that I'll fill in the blanks on. And it says uh, in Matthew 19:16 that a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Mark explains that Jesus was leaving town and that the young man didn't just stroll up to Jesus. He ran up to Jesus and fell to his knees and said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? You get a different feel when you hear Mark's account, don't you? I mean, if somebody comes running up to you and falls on their knees, what do you derive from that? What do you interpret that to mean? There's something urgent here, right? I mean, this guy is in earnest. So, I mean, we are off to a great start with this guy. He is earnest. He's looking in the right direction and he's asking the right question. He's asking the right person and he's asking the right question. I mean, can it get any better than asking the sinless son of God how to be saved? Because that's what he's asking. What do I have to do to get eternal life? We are off to a very good start. But Jesus, as he so often would do, Jesus loved to ask questions. Oh, if we would only learn to to operate and relate like Jesus did. Because most of us, you ask us a question and we're going to give you a lecture in return, right? That's how most of us parent, you know. I'm going to tell you the truth. And Jesus, so much of the time, taught by asking questions. He tried to engage people's hearts and minds. In response to a question, he asked a question. He said, why do you ask me about what is good? And Mark says, and Luke say that he goes home to say, you know, there's only one person who's good. Mark says that he he addressed Jesus as good teacher. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, so why are you asking me about what good thing to do? And oh, by the way, why are you calling me good if you know, as you do, that there's only one who's good and that's God? And he says, if you want to enter life... Obey the commandments. Now, if you really strip this thing down and are honest about it, Jesus' response on the surface is one of the most peculiar things he ever said. He's been asked the question, how do I get saved? How do I get into heaven? How do I get eternal life? And in response, he asks a question, and then he says, you want eternal life? Obey the commandments. Does that not make anybody a little bit uncomfortable? I mean, is that the plan of salvation? How do you get to heaven? Obey what the scriptures say. Obey the commandments. I don't know if that's the answer that the guy was expecting or not, but uh, in response, the young man says, "Uh, which ones? That's a fair question because there are over 600. Which commandments am I supposed to obey? And Jesus homes in on the Ten Commandments and he says, do not murder. And can't you just imagine the young man in response? Don't kill anybody. Okay, check. Hadn't killed anybody. Do not commit adultery. Hopefully, check, and suck with anybody else's wife. Do not steal. Ooh, I wonder how far back that one goes. In faith, I'll give myself a check there. I'm okay. Do not give false testimony. Don't lie. Hmm. Well, most of the time I don't. And love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. It's getting harder the further he goes. But the young man says in summary there, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? That he's been working hard at following the rules. And yet his heart was telling him that he was missing something major. You ever felt like that? 
been involved in church, done all the religious stuff, and yet your heart just tells you there has to be something more than this. That's where this young man was. What am I still missing? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, another interesting thought, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Oh, like a dagger to the heart. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then as the young man has walked away, and that's, that's grieved Jesus. One of the other writers said, Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. He didn't want to see him walk away unfulfilled, disconnected, but he did. He walked away. Jesus looked at his disciples then and said, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, Who then can be saved? Good question. And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What an interesting, sort of disturbing encounter. Doesn't it seem like a, a peculiar pair of responses from Jesus when two different people come to him seemingly in earnest Hungry for essentially the same thing, and they both walk away unfulfilled. They apparently walk away without a relationship with God. How is it that so many people miss out on a relationship with God that has been made so available to us? And it's not complex to enter into it. Jesus made it clear that a child can get it. In fact, he said, if you don't become like a child, you won't get it. And yet most people miss it. How is that? And have we just misjudged to say that most people miss out on it? Are most people getting it and we're just not giving them credit for it? No. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, everybody say many. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few, everybody say few, few. only a few find it. Students, how many students do we have in the room going back to school tomorrow? Let me see students' hands. Well, remember this when you walk back on your campus. Most of the people who walk the halls with you are on the broad road. Where does the broad road lead? Anybody. It leads to destruction. Jesus said there are only a few people who are on the narrow road that leads to life. Bottom line is real simple in, in what he said there. In the world, most of the people that you know, most of the people that you work around and live among, most of those people are not on the road that leads to a relationship with God or to eternal life. Period. And I think for those of us who've grown up in church, we kind of go, well, I'm not surprised by that. You know, we live in a world that's got a lot of problems, so I'm not that shocked that that's true out in the world. And yet, just a couple of sentences later, hear how Jesus finishes this thought. He turns his attention from the world to those of us within the circle of religion, within the circle of, of faith, in the church. And says, but not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's a little disturbing, but I'm sure there have been some who called on Jesus' name and maybe didn't get the real thing. Now it gets real disturbing. 
He says, only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whoa. I don't know about you, but that is to me, without a doubt, the single most disturbing scripture in all the Bible. I mean, if you take that for what it is... Jesus is saying as point blank, as in your face as he possibly can to church people like you and me. He is saying there are going to be a bunch of you who on the final day of judgment are going to walk in thinking, I'm good. I am fine. I knew Jesus. He was my Lord. I went to church. I didn't just go to church. I mean, I was one of the ringleaders in church. People ask a question. I said, Jesus is the answer. When somebody was in need, I'd pray for them. I'd cast demons out of them. I'd prophesy. I'd say, oh, I think I've got a word from the Lord for you. You get the feeling of who he's talking about. And Jesus says there are going to be plenty of people that that describes their lives. And they're going to get to the final judgment. And I'm going to say, I'm sorry, you belong among the goats. Those who are going to go into a godless eternity of torture and never-ending torment. And when they say, but Lord, why? Why did you not accept us? That I, he said, I'm just going to say real plainly, it just boiled down to this. I never knew you. You and I never had a relationship. You love saying Jesus is Lord and doing religious stuff, but there was one vital thing missing. You and I never had a relationship. You know what the bottom line in that is? You were never born again. How can it be that so many people miss out on the most important thing in life? We're not just talking about a ticket to heaven. We're talking about the thing that makes life have real meaning. Joy, purpose, a personal connection with God where you begin to experience real life. God's voice speaking in you. God's life poured into you. Why do so many people miss out on that? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. I'm just going to quickly throw out several to you. To hopefully help us kind of look at our own lives and the lives of people around us and just consider where am I in this mix? You know, the most obvious reason a lot of people miss out on salvation is that many just never hear the gospel message. Paul brings that up in Romans ten fourteen when he says, how can they believe in a God whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone go and share the message with him, which is a great reminder for us why it's important that we're always sharing the good news of Jesus with other people. So he said, you know, some have not heard. Oh, by the way, that's not us anymore. (laughs) Even if you've never heard by the time you leave today, you, you will have heard and understood because it's not a complicated message. The second reason that many don't get in, and it's the most common one that I run into when I talk to people about Jesus, is many seek to earn God's forgiveness. Essentially saying, you know, look, when it all comes down to it and it's all weighed out in the scales, I feel like I've done more good than bad. Well, bad news in two regards. One, God doesn't use a balance scale in how he executes his judgment. It's the very opposite of what the scripture teaches. And beyond that... Titus 3.5 reminds us that it's not because of any righteous things that we have done that He saved us. And Isaiah 64.6 tells us that all of our righteous deeds, the very best that we have to offer, are as filthy rags in the sight of God. So that whole thing of, well, I've done more good than bad, doesn't hold any weight, according to the Scriptures. The, the third reason that 
some don't get in is because they just don't take their sins seriously. I, I've heard enough people say, well, look, I, I just don't feel like I've done anything to, to deserve hell. And if we're honest, a lot of us feel that way. A lot of good Christian people feel that way. I mean, I know what we're supposed to say, but if you get real honest, you think about, you know, okay, I fouled up a bunch of times in the course of my 60, 70, 80 years here on earth. Do those mistakes equate to a bazillion years in fiery hell? And in our human minds, it feels like, no, that doesn't add up. Once again, the bad news is it ain't up to us. There is a righteous God who determines what is just. And for those of us who think, well, you know, my sin isn't that big of a deal because I hadn't killed anybody. And I haven't done any worse than the people around me have done. Well, bear in mind, a lot of the people around us don't know God and aren't headed into an eternal relationship with Him. But beyond that, we just need to hear what the Scriptures say. Where it says that we've all sinned. And Romans 3 says we have all become like one who is unclean. And in Romans 6, he says that the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. Eternal separation from God. So... There's not much comfort in the thought of, well, I I just am not any worse than the next person. A fourth thing that stands in some people's way, it's a smaller number of people, but for some, guilt and shame will just trip them up. You just don't understand what I've done. I, I don't know that God would want me because, I mean, I've never shared with anybody, you know, my secret sins. You just don't know what I've done. I cheated. I had an affair. I had an abortion. I, you know, fill in the blank. For some people, their biggest, darkest secret sin, it just seems bigger than the cross. And the thing that really can be crippling is when there's an ongoing repeated sin. You know, I've got to struggle with pills. I've got to struggle with alcohol. I struggle with an addiction to pornography or, you know, something like that. And, and so it's like, oh, God, I just, I don't see how I could ever be a Christian when I have all the problems in the past that I've got. And here's the good news. The blood of Jesus was sufficient to cover the sins of murderers. Jesus is praying forgiveness from the cross for those killing him. And if the blood of Jesus can cleanse a murderer's heart, you think it might be sufficient to cover your sin? Even your ongoing struggles and sins? Hebrews 10 says that it's not only enough to give you a new and living way to have direct access to God, but it says that the blood of Jesus not only cleanses our sin, but it cleanses us from a guilty conscience. Isn't that good news? I mean, there are some of us right now that ought to be saying, I want some of that. Some of us that are saved need some of that. Need the blood of Jesus to just cleanse us not only so that we're forgiven, but so we don't carry a guilty conscience. To be able to truly know in our heart of hearts that when God looks at us, He doesn't shake His head and go, Boy, that Harry Bishop, man. I let him in, but I sure he got in by the skin of his teeth because I remember old Harry and what he's done. That Rudy Steinecker, good gracious. He barely got in. No. God doesn't look at anybody like that. When God looks at Harry, when God looks at Rudy, when God looks at Mimi, when God looks at Mark, He sees one thing. He sees the righteousness of Jesus manifest in the finished version of Harry, of Rudy, of Mimi, and of Mark. He sees the fully redeemed and sanctified version of us. Because he has the perspective of being able to look at us through the end, from the other side. The blood of Jesus is enough to even cleanse our conscience. The, the next thing that gets some people in trouble is procrastination that becomes an easy excuse. You know, I'll get around to it. 
someday. Now, I used to say to people who, who would put it off, who, who would say, you know what, I believe in God and I know I've got an issue with sin. And I, I know I need to be saved. I know I need to get right with God. And I'm going to. I'm just not ready to do that yet. And I, I used to try and say to people, you just don't need to take that chance. Because you just don't know. Driving home from church today. Be, be a good evangelist here. You just never know. There might be an 18-wheeler waiting for you on 98. Blam! I'm going to take you out. And you'd go to hell right then and there. So you better deal with Jesus today. Okay, that could happen. But the truth be told, it's highly unlikely. Here's the much scarier thing in that proposition of saying, I know I need to be right with God, but I just ain't ready to do it today. But I will later on. You promise yourself, I'll do it later on. Now, some of you may be about to get mad at me. I want you to think about this before you take offense at what I say. Anyone who would say, I'm going to get right with God, but I'm just going to wait and do it a little bit later in life, is the most presumptuous thing that you could ever do. Presumptuous in, in a couple of ways. One, that you would say to the God who made you and who controls everything and who has honored you by choosing to draw near to you and to invite you into a relationship with Him. Where he's paid all the price. He's done all the work and said, come. Come in and receive what I've done for you. For you to stiff him and say, I don't think I want to do that right now. I'll get back with you later on. That in and of itself is offensive at a level that's hard to describe. But that's really not the scariest part. Here's the scary part that most of us don't ever think about. The great presumption in saying, I'll get around to it later on, is this. It is in thinking that it was ever up to you. You can't get saved on your own. You can't get saved because you decided today was the day for you to be saved. Now, don't get me wrong. In order for you to be saved, you have to say yes to Jesus. But let's be really clear about this. You don't come to Jesus unless the Father draws you. Jesus said that. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. And here's the thing most of us don't consider, don't factor into the equation... God isn't drawing you at every moment of your life. And the fact of the matter is, in significant, noticeable ways, most of your life, you don't feel the drawing of God in your life. There are a few select moments for most of us where the work of God that has been preparing us focuses in on that moment of time and the Spirit of God speaks to your heart and invites you to repent, to come and be saved and have your life transformed. And we're prone to just sort of sit there and go, I feel that and my heart's racing and I know that I need to, but there's just some stuff I want to do and some things I don't want to give up. and I'm just not sure I'm ready for that. God, I'll get back with you on that. You check me later on as if it were up to you. As if it were going to be your deal to later on down the line that you could expect your flesh, your rotten, sinful flesh to later on down the line say, Hey God, I think I'm ready for you now. Come on back. I want my ticket punched for heaven. Your flesh will never do that. The only way you will ever get another chance to say yes to Jesus is for God to once again draw near to you, to woo you, to convict you, and call you to repentance. And on, at any point in time when you know that the Spirit of God is dealing with you, where you're wrestling with that and thinking about, I don't know, I may just wait. You don't know that you'll ever get that again. 
What guarantee do you have that God's going to come knocking at the door of your heart again and saying, come to me? Hopefully he will. And you may be saying, preacher, that's just a scare tactic. I don't care. I'm scared to hop in the fire because it burns me. Righteous fear is a good thing. We should be afraid to go through another moment of life having neglected what God has offered. It's why the scripture says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Behold, today is the day of salvation. If you hear the Spirit's voice calling you, you better respond today because it ain't going to be up to you to pick the next time that God speaks to your heart. It is a major deal for God to woo us and to convict us. And you never know when it's going to be the last time that we say no, that God said, I gave you the opportunity. Your flesh isn't ever going to run to God. When He speaks, it's critical that we don't procrastinate. Two other things that I'll just mention. Some miss out because they, they just refuse to give up the comfort and control that they have. They're like the rich young man. I don't want to give up what I have. I've got all this stuff. Life's good. I'm afraid it may cost me something. And then there's a final group that's a pretty big group, and it is those for whom intellectual objections and doubt seem to immobilize them. You know, Nicodemus seemed to be in that category. I, I just don't know that I can accept what I can't see and I can't prove. This thing that has been offered to us, that even a child can understand is missed by so many people for so many different reasons. And it's missed by a lot of really bright people. We just heard the stories of two people who were earnestly seeking Jesus. And they apparently missed out. So how does anybody get in? The apostles were worried about this. They said, you know, how does anybody get into this thing? I'm going to share with you one other story. Uh, it's found in Luke 23. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip over there with me. It's a very familiar story, and it happens on one of the two most important days in all of human history, the day that Jesus is crucified. And in the midst of the account of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and mine, we read in Luke twenty-three thirty-two that Jesus is not dying alone. We all know that there were three who were executed that day. Luke records that two other men, both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, that is Golgotha, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And in the middle of that, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, talking about those crucifying him. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And, and they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar, and they said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice put above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, 
you will be with me in paradise. How can that be? He is a criminal. I mean, not just a petty criminal. He is a criminal guilty of capital offense. He's fessed up to it right there on the cross. I deserve to die for the junk that I have done. How does a criminal at that level in his dying moments get it? And a super religious man like Nicodemus misses it. And an earnest, hungry, spiritually hungry young man misses it. How does this criminal hanging on the cross, struggling for breath, how does he get it? Why would he get it? What did he get? What did he do? Well, I'll tell you part of the reason that he could get it while others would miss it. Desperate people come to Jesus much easier than, than comfortable people do. Seemed like a perplexing pair of responses. Jesus' response to Nicodemus versus his response to the rich young man. But the two were very closely tied. What did he say to Nicodemus? You can't get in the kingdom unless you're born again. Let me ask you this question. You ever, you ever watch somebody be born? When you get past the grossness, and there's a lot of that, but when you get past that, it truly is a miracle to, to witness, isn't it? I mean, for one thing, I, just the whole gift of life, wow, I mean, that's so God, and it is so miraculous. But now I'm kind of talking like a guy, just to be honest. I'm just talking about that baby getting from there to there is miraculous, isn't it? I'm talking about getting from inside mama to out in the world. It is ridiculously miraculous, especially when you understand that the birth canal at its max is four inches in diameter. Now, I'm not fixing to get gross on you. I just want you to think about that for a moment because it, it, bear, it has real bearing on what Jesus said. Think about a four-inch piece of PVC pipe, about that big around, and a human being. And to say, we've got to get this child from here to here, and we've got to send it through this pipe. You can't do that. You can't put a human being through a four-inch PVC pipe. Well, with man, it's impossible. God says anything's possible with me. So God's got this way of doing it. First of all, he doesn't wire the... the uh, Parts of the skull together in an infant. He says, we're going to have to leave those loose because we're going to turn that head into a football to squeeze it through the tube. And all the bones, we're not going to calcify any of them yet. We're just going to leave them like rubber so that the shoulders fold up, send them through the tube. We're going to do the same thing with the hips. We're going to send that whole body through there. It looks totally impossible, and I'm going to make it happen. And you watch it happen, and it, it just works. And it's why it looks a little creepy when it happens because it's like, ooh, I don't get heads ever going to be round again. When it comes out, shaped like that. And then, I, I will never forget watching my first child be born. I had never seen that up close and personal. And to see those little shoulders just kind of go, boink, and they pop out, and boom, they all pop back in place. And it's like, I don't think I can do that. It is a miracle. And Jesus says, you can't get saved unless you get born again. Well, I'm, I'm like Nicodemus there. If i got to be born that way, I'm doomed. I, my head doesn't turn into a football and, you know, it's more like a pumpkin. And it's, my shoulders don't fold up. How, that couldn't happen. And, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm not saying you've got to pass through the birth canal again. But he is telling us a couple of critically important things. First thing he's telling us when he says you have to be born again is understand this, Nicodemus. And understand this for every one of us here. You've spent your life, Nicodemus, trying to be good. You've been one of the rule keepers, one of the rule makers, because you felt like if you could be good enough that God would let you in. And Nicodemus, I'm here to tell you, you don't need a little help. 
you need a new start. I'm here to tell you Nicodemus can never be good enough to get in. And in fact, the only hope that Nicodemus has is for the present version of you to be snuffed out and for you to be born again and there to be a brand new Nicodemus with a clean slate. You've got to be born again. You've got to have a total do-over. You need a new beginning. But he used a really important analogy when he said, you've got to be born again. I want you to remember that image of a whole human having to pass through a tiny little space. Let me ask you, those of you who've watched a baby be born, how many of you have witnessed a baby come out with a suitcase in hand? Even a duffel bag. Handful of money. A check. You've never seen them come out with anything in hand. It's a miracle their body got through there. You can't bring anything with you when you're born. There ain't room for it. And when you're born again, it's the same way. You can't bring anything with you. Only you can make it through. That's why when Jesus answered the rich young man, it wasn't unlike his response to Nicodemus, though on the surface it seemed so different. You see, the rich young man was like Nicodemus. Oh, I've been keeping the rules. I live by the rules. I'm just still missing something. What am I missing? And Jesus is going, well, let's see how you're doing on the rules. Oh, I'm doing good. I'm keeping all of the rules. How are you doing with uh, love your neighbors? You love yourself. Oh, I do that all the time. Jesus, well, great. If you're so good at that, then sell all your possessions and give to the poor because that's how you love your neighbor. If you're living that so perfectly, you won't have any problem doing that. Oh. You mean like actually sell my stuff? And give to the poor. Well, yeah, that's what loving your neighbor might entail. Actually meeting their needs. What's Jesus doing to him there? A couple of things. One, he's helping him to see you aren't living by the law. That's why Jesus is, is giving him this stuff, just kind of feeding him line initially, where he's like, well, what do I need to do? What else can I add to my list of good things that I've done to get into heaven? And Jesus is saying, well, you know, if you want to get there that route, you just need to keep all the law. You need to be perfect. Well, bad news, dude, there's only one person that's ever pulled that off, and his name was Jesus. The rest of us have screwed it up thoroughly. And if you've screwed it up at all, you're doomed. You're done for. You've got to find another way in. And as he's making this begin to dawn on the guy, you're not keeping the law as well as you think you are. Or you wouldn't be holding on to your money so tightly. He is helping him to begin to see that for you to be born again, fella, you're going to have to let go of your stuff. Because to get born again, you don't get to carry anything with you through that. You alone can make it. This is why when that was all said and done and the guy walked away dejected and the disciples were like, what was that about? And Jesus said, I'm telling you, it is so hard for a rich man to get in the kingdom. He says, it's like trying to get a camel to pass through the eye of a needle for a rich man to pass through the spiritual birth canal with all of his crap in tow. That's how hard it is. Because you see, there's not room for your house. There's not room for your bank account. There's not room for your girlfriend. There's not room for anything that you think that you've got to hold on to to pass with you through the spiritual rebirth process. There's only room for you. You have to let go of all of those things. Does that mean I can't have a wife? Does that mean I can't have a boyfriend? Does that mean I can't have a house? Does that mean I can't have any of those things? It doesn't mean you won't have a place to live and you won't have relationships with people. It means you have to let go of all of those things. Surrendering them to Jesus. And you, empty-handed, pass from this life into eternal life. You've got to be born again. 
And there's only room for you empty-handed to be born again. Are you with me? How could the dying thief on the cross get it if these other two guys swung and missed? He was in the best position to receive. Jesus said it's almost impossible for rich people because they're holding on to so much stuff. And it, it's like trying to shove the... A, again, same kind of analogy. Trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. That doesn't work because they're holding on to all this junk. He says rich people just can't hardly ever get to a place of letting go. People who have all kinds of attachments. You know the four groups of people that are, that are the easiest to lead to Jesus and to see them get born again? In my estimation, four groups of people. Children, most people who get saved get saved while they're children. Children aren't rich yet. I mean, they, they haven't personally acquired a bunch of stuff and they haven't made tons of attachments in the world. So it's easier for them to enter in. Those who are near death, when you get really close to the end, you start seeing things with clarity and the things of this world suddenly don't matter that much for you. You realize you're not going to get to carry them through either on the other end. Those who live in abject poverty, they just don't have a whole lot to hold on to. And in desperation, the offer of the gospel sounds good to them. And those who are in prison. I know it's easy for us to make fun of people who get saved in prison and say, oh, it's jailhouse religion. I want to tell you, people in prison get it quicker than most of us on the outside do. Because stripped of everything else, the offer of the gospel begins to make sense. You begin to see why the dying thief on the cross... He's at the end of his life. Everything's been stripped from him. He is a prisoner in the process of being executed. He had nothing else. And when he looked to Jesus, clearly he had prior knowledge of Jesus. He just hadn't bought in yet. And as he watched the sinless Son of God die next to him, there was no way in his heart he could deny this guy was who he said he was. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what prayer to offer. He just looked at Jesus and said, Lord Jesus... We're guilty of, of the things that we're being executed for here today. But you're not. Please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And with that, he was declaring, I believe you're who you said you are. I believe you're the Messiah. Whatever hope I have in life, it's found in you. And Jesus said, that's it. You, you're with me. You don't have to wait and wonder. Today... You and I are going to be together in paradise. Wow. Could it really be that easy? It absolutely could and is. So how, how do you get it? How do you get born again? It's as easy as ABC 1, 2, 3. It really boils down to this. To be born again, first of all, it means a... You have got to admit that you are a sinner and that you need to be born again. Admit that you're a sinner comes easily for most of us because we just see all the stuff that we've screwed up and the people that we've hurt. For some, the admit that you need to be born again becomes a major stumbling block. Because a bunch of us have been in church for a really long time. And we start getting hung up on, oh, but what's everybody going to think? They thought I've been a Christian for such a long time. Who cares? At the end of the day, what matters is you and I being born again and having a relationship with Jesus. The dying thief on the cross, he didn't have any difficulty acknowledging that he was a sinner getting what he deserved. Jesus was trying to get the rich young man to recognize his need when he was saying, you know, why are you calling me good? There's nobody good but God.
The B is this. You must believe that Jesus is God's son. That he died for your sins and he rose from the dead. This is not one of those deals where you just sort of believe in whatever you want to about God. I want to ask you just simply and pointedly. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Now, I don't look at you in judgment if you don't believe those things. But I can tell you this with integrity. If if you're unsure about those things, if you will look into them, you'll find there are solid answers to those questions. He is the most carefully chronicled life in all of the ancient world, in any part of the world, in any part of ancient history. His death and resurrection are the most thoroughly and carefully chronicled events anywhere in the ancient world. Anywhere. These things actually happened. And Paul said, this is the heart of the gospel. He says, by this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel message. So here's two-thirds of the deal. Do you believe that you're a sinner in need of God's forgiveness? Do you believe that you need to be born again? Okay, we can say, most of us could say yes to that if that's never happened in your life. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross and rose from the dead? Yes, I believe that. So does that make me a Christian? No, it does not. The demons know that much. James pointed that out. The demons know these facts and they're not Christians. So what's the final piece? What's the, the C in ABC? I must confess Jesus as my Lord. I must commit to follow Him. Paul said in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Let's be really clear about this. When he's saying you need to believe these things about Jesus, but you need to confess Him as Lord, he's not just saying that in the privacy of your bedroom, at home alone, that you just go, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. And that's kind of the end of the deal. And now you're a secret agent for Jesus for the rest of your life and nobody else knows about it. Jesus is not recruiting spies for Him. He is recruiting men and women and boys and girls to be His brothers and sisters who represent Him loud and proud in the world. When He says, confess Jesus as Lord, it's His way of saying, you announce it, you let it be known. I now, I used to live for me, but guess what? I've been born again and I now live for Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Master. And Jesus said, let's be real clear about this. Not everyone who just says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but it's those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven who will enter in. It's not enough just to say He's Lord. We've got to live life differently. It doesn't mean faith plus a bunch of works is going to get you there. The dying thief on the cross is a great reminder of that. It's just saying, this has got to be a faith and a declaration that has some substance to it. I mean, whether you have a whole lot of opportunities or just a little bit of time, it is truly letting Jesus be the Lord and the Master of your life. Having heard all of that, you know, we might be prone to go, I don't know. Maybe it's too late for me. Maybe I've waited too long. I'll offer two, two words of encouragement and hope for you. One is Nicodemus. Nicodemus looked like he just totally missed out, didn't he? 
Walked away, went back to the ruling high council, went on with his life. But do you remember that on the day that Jesus died, when the disciples of Jesus had run and hidden, when it was so incredibly dangerous to let anybody see that you're a disciple of Jesus because darkness, it looks like, is winning. They are, they are brutalizing and murdering Jesus on the cross. And everybody's afraid, asking, who's next? When he has died and they're taking his body down, a guy that we don't know prior, Joseph of Arimathea, that John says was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. John came and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, jo- Joseph of Arimathea. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus had brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it up with the spices and strips of linen. We don't know what day he came to faith. We don't know when he got born again. But you can bet on this. Nicodemus got born again. Because on the day when it was most dangerous to identify yourself with Jesus, Nicodemus, who had been a part of the ruling council, stepped out from among them and identified himself with Jesus and with Joseph, a disciple of Jesus. There may have been a bunch of times in your past when you've wrestled with what we're talking about today and just... Pulled back, not been willing to go there. By virtue of the fact that you are here today and hearing the message and the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, it is evidence of the fact that it is not too late for you. God hasn't given up on you. I had the privilege just a very few years ago of a friend calling me up who told me the terrible news that his sister, who was just in her very early 50s, was in the hospital in Mobile, had just been diagnosed with a, a very horrible form of, of advanced cancer. She was terminal, told her she only had weeks to live, and it had gone to her brain, and was so invasive that they were like, we don't know how many days she'll even be able to think lucidly. I mean, it, this, is, this is as bad a sentence as you can get from the doctor. And he said, could you come today and talk with her? She's just very bright. She's an accomplished writer and won some really significant awards for her writing and, and just a very bright person. Had never wanted anything to do with God or religion. Just didn't see the sense in it all. And he said, would you be willing to come and talk with my sister? She's in ICU. There's a little 30-minute window of time. Would you come and talk with her? I said, I'll be glad to. And went in with the brother at that appointed time and began to talk with her. And it was just amazing. It was like the curtain had been pulled back. And this dear, sweet, just vibrant lady who had been so turned off to God and religion suddenly was so receptive. She wanted to hear everything she could about Jesus, about this God who loved her. And that 30 minutes passed like this. And a nurse who should have been wearing a a Nazi SS Gestapo uniform came in. I'm sure her name was Helga or something pleasant like that. Came in and said, it is time you have to go. And the brother's going, wait, please, this is very important. We only need a few more minutes. Because we were really to that crucial point where you could see, boy, her heart was softening. And she was just so open to the gospel that day. And she's like, no, I'm sorry. The time is up. You must leave now. And he's like, no, you don't understand. This is, this is life or death. You've got to give us a few more minutes. She's like, no, you have to leave now. I will go get security if I have to. That is one of those moments in my life where I didn't say it. But I'm like, sister, you better go tell him to bring a gun and some handcuffs. Because that's the only way we're leaving this room. You know, go on. And so she left to go get security. 
And we pressed on in. And in the course of the next few minutes, this dear lady bowed her head and she invited the Jesus that she had never had any interest in before to come into her life. Over the course of the next few weeks, she grew sicker and weaker and she died just a few weeks later. I had the privilege of doing her funeral. But she walked through those final weeks with a peace and a joy that you wouldn't believe for somebody who was enduring physically what she was going through. Because on that day in Mobile Infirmary's ICU... She came to know the God that she had never even believed in for any part of her life. A skeptic might say, oh, she was just looking for some form of comfort at the end of her life. I want to tell you, an imaginary God did not give her the peace and the strength to walk through the unspeakable in those final weeks. She met the living Jesus that we're talking about today. I want to ask you the most basic question. Do you have a relationship with that Jesus? Have you ever been born again? And if you can't say with any certainty, I know that I have, there is no shame in that. Because there's nobody in this room, there's nobody listening online that was just born into this world in a relationship with God. Everybody in here has been so fouled up, we've all been desperate and in need of a new start of being born again. But there has to be that beginning point where we give up on reforming ourselves and putting this off. And we just say, Jesus, I do believe. I believe in you. I believe in what you've done for me. And I'm asking you to come in and to make me new. I need a new beginning. I need you to, to make me over new. I need you to forgive me and give me a fresh start. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord together in prayer. And I really want us just in this moment... To be very still and quiet and to listen for what the Spirit of God is saying. I, I, I want to ask you, just if everybody would, just kind of just be still where you are right now. Do you know for a fact, I don't want anybody else looking around, this is not for show. And this includes those of you listening online. Do you know that you have been born again? And that you're in a right relationship with God. Nobody else looking. Would you just, if that's the case, would you just raise your hand and go, yes, I know I've been born again. I know I'm in a relationship with God. That's where it needs to be. Awesome. Thank you for that. If you just raised your hand, why don't you take a moment right now just to say thank you to God for what he's done in your life and what he's doing. And would you offer up a prayer for just the many people around you who in honesty couldn't raise their hands right now? If you didn't raise your hand, thank you for your honesty about that. No shame at all in that. I want to say a word to you. God loves you. Jesus died for you. And He wants so very much for you to have a relationship with Him. He's inviting you to that. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to prepare for that. It just has to begin with you saying yes to Him. Yes, to Him coming in to forgive you. And yes, to Him becoming the Lord and Master of your life. Now, I just want to ask you, are you willing today to be born again? If today you want that fresh start, if you want that life, forgiveness and being right with God, would you just indicate that by just simply raising your hand? I don't want anybody else looking, but if you just say, yep, I want it today. I want the fresh start. Yes, anybody else? Okay. Who else? Don't be ashamed to. Okay, thank you. Who else? I, I want to be born again. I want Jesus' life in me. Any, I'm not going to stretch this out. Just another moment. Thank you, both of you.
anybody else that today you just want to make this right. I'm not going to put this off any longer. So anybody else? Thank you. I see your hand. If that's your desire, I want to ask you just in your heart. You don't even have to say it out loud. God, here's your heart. Would you just pray with me a simple prayer that says this. Jesus, I need you. I believe in you. And even though sometimes my my faith is shaky, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm asking you now to come into my life to give me a fresh start and a clean slate. Please forgive my sins. And make a new person out of me. The best I know how, I am going to live for you. I give you my life. I give you my future. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that I'm now born again. Father, I just say thank you. Thank you for your saving work. Thank you for Jesus and for the cross. And I thank you that even now, your spirit is coming into the hearts and lives of those who have just said yes to you. Would you seal this moment with the sweet presence of your spirit and the joy that comes with knowing that the slate is wiped clean and that the righteousness of Jesus covers us like a garment. We receive that with thanksgiving. Thank you that today there are sons and daughters that are now our brothers and sisters in your family. We rejoice in that. Father, thank you for what you're doing among us. We welcome your work and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.